Father God, just thank you for the awesome opportunity you give us each and every week to gather in your house and gather in your name as your people, God. God, I ask that you do this as we enter this time of worship, Father, that we may block out the distractions of the world, Lord, and purely and intentionally focus on worshiping and, and learning and hearing from you, God. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the chance you give us every day to live for you. Lord, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Everybody doing all right this morning? Yeah. Great. Well, if you're a visitor with us today, we'd like to say welcome to you. We're very glad that you are here. And if you will take a moment uh, sometime at the end of service to stop by our visitor's table in the back, we've got a small gift we'd like to give to you uh, just to say thank you for worshiping with us today. Uh, just as a quick announcement and a quick uh, second to brag on somebody. We're going to have a high attendance Sunday school day on September 25th. We've told Sunday school teachers about that. That's sneaking up on us. It's coming up on us roughly a month away now. Uh, I'm going to brag on Caleb and Nice for just a second, though, because he brought his squad with him to church today. Last Sunday, last Sunday our college class had, I think, eight people in it, roughly. Um, this Sunday, we had 11. Um, and oh, last time we had six. Sorry, okay, I'm just correcting me. Um, so going from six to 11 over the course of one week, just simply by asking people to come to church. Uh, they were all happy to be here and happy to support me. So we appreciate that. But I challenge you, I challenge you church to be willing to do the same thing. Be willing to step out. Be willing to ask that person that you've been, that you know you needed to ask for a long time, but you just haven't because you're like, oh, they're going to tell me no. You know what? Caleb probably thought some of them were going to tell them no, but said they showed up. Um, so, so step out on faith and invite people to church. Bring them. So that high attendance Sunday is like this huge number because we've been building up to that point along the way. Does that make sense? Can we do that? Yes. Thank you. Right side of the church agree. Left side, I'm praying for you. We're going to work on that. Um, I'm going to turn it over to Philip Williams for just a second. He's got another quick announcement. Yeah, I, can, I can do this right here. Thank you, Ryan. Um, we uh, are starting on Sunday nights, uh, September 11th, something we're going to call Truth University. So the preacher and I are having lunch, and this comes up, the idea that we would do a few options to choose from on Sunday night for folks to attend, and we talked about it uh, three or four times over the past three or four years, but we broke the huddle a couple of weeks ago on this idea and are running with it. So some really faithful folks have agreed to teach those. Um, and uh, you're going to learn about the three options over the next three weeks. I'm going to tell you more about mine, but I'll tell you what all three of them are. Sunday nights for seven weeks starting September 11th at 6 o'clock. You, you need to sign up for these starting next week. The first one is one uh, that Pam Todd is teaching. It is a David Jeremiah study on the fruits of the Spirit. It's called Signs of Life. Uh, really good, gifted communicator, Dr. Jeremiah, and, and uh, some really good stuff. You know, a lot of times if somebody's trying to explain a concept to you, you might ask them, well, what, what does that look like? What's that? How's that going to work? Well, the, the scripture tells us very clearly what it ought to look like in our lives if the Spirit is at work there. And so that's uh, signs of life. Uh, uh, Dr. Jeremiah Pam's going to teach that. And then um, Matt Tucker has agreed. When I say agreed, one of his arms might have been behind his back. I got to agree. Uh, but he's agreed to, uh, to lead a study that's uh, Kyle Madeline, uh, that's the not a fan guy. Uh, the name of the study is Gods of War. Uh, and it's, it's a, an idea about defeating idols that are in battle for our hearts. What are the things out in the world asking us to give our lives, our hearts, our minds to them? There's lots of them. Uh, it's a really uh, a strong challenge for us to consider uh, the things that might be battling for what's best in our life when God is there for us. To give our all to it. Then, uh, Brahma and I specifically uh, are teaching a study by uh, Gary Thomas. It's called 
uh, Sacred Marriage. Uh, the subtitle is, What if God created marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? Um, and so, what are the things that God wants to teach me through my marriage? What is he, how does he want to use his marriage to reveal the truth of who he is? The Ephesians is, is real clear that I'm supposed to love Robert like Christ loved the church. We love them that. You know, what am I, how, how is that going to work? What he did was amazing. Uh, and yet God wants to teach me some things to make me more like his son Jesus in this thing called marriage. So that's our study. Three studies on Sunday night. And then Ryan's starting a curriculum called Disciple 6. All of this stuff you can check out on the web if you want to look and see what it is. But some really quality options on Sunday nights for seven weeks starting September 11th at 6 p.m. We're calling Truth University. Timmy asked me, uh, or I was telling Timmy about this book I was reading on Wednesday, and he's like, Matt, you don't want to get past the first chapter of the books. Uh, and I was like, no, it's really good. And then this morning in Sunday school, Phil mentioned that I was going to be helping with this study, and he was like, that's why I'm reading the book. So, uh, there you have it. Um, let's just uh, worship you.
and you can rest in that, um, that no matter what comes our way, in good times and bad times, um, that God is good. Um, and if you've been in Eastside before by any chance, um, and you've heard me lead worship too often, uh, which I apologize for that, no, I'm just kidding. Um, You've heard me say that um, I Surrender All is totally one of my least favorite songs to read uh, just because of the message. The thought of surrender, um, I totally hate it. Um, I like to hold on to what Matt Tucker wants to hold on to. Um, but I've been reading through Acts and uh, studying through Acts some and getting a good picture of what the church uh, is called to be and um, the power that swept through the early church. And, uh, one of the things that's common, or that happened with all these people, is they, they laid down everything um, that they personally thought was important to grasp hold of the power uh, of the gospel uh, and the power um, that the Spirit enabled them. And then they, they went forward uh, with their purpose, um, which was to share that, to, to love others and to serve others. Um, and you can't fully uh, take power, take hold of the power of Christ. Um, and serve and do all this other stuff when you've got both hands full of what you want to hold on to. Now and then I've been reading through the book, um, Gods of the War, and it focuses a lot on idolatry and the things that we put before Christ. Um, and we make idols out of an awful lot. Um, I, met, I don't know about you guys. Matt Tucker can make idols out of a, of a lot. I don't think I'm about myself. Um, but, you know, we sing this song, Good Forever. You are good forever, and your love endures. Um, Jesus, always your love remains. But we can't really experience that goodness, that greatness, and the grace, and the mercy, and everything that comes along with knowing Christ until we surrender. Um, those things that which we hold important. And you know, it's not saying that they aren't important. Some of these things that we make idols out of, some of those things that we don't want to surrender, are good things, but they they never take place. Um, take a place they don't want place in our life. They, they, they need to be surrendered. Um, so as we sing this song today, uh, don't think of something as uh, don't think of surrender. as kind of in my thought process. Do we don't think of surrender as having to give up stuff, although in many cases it may be. But when you lay those things down, you gain so much more. So surrender, yes. Now, for what you get back in return uh, is unexplainable and uh, joyous. Get the power and the presence of Christ like you've never had before. Um, so let's worship together. <laughs>
Lord, I pray that that will be our desire today. As we, as we worship you, and as we seek your face, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our lives. And help mold us and make us into who you call us to be. Someone who willingly, obediently puts you first in everything that we do. You are good, you are faithful, you are mighty, you are strong, you are a savior, you're a healer. I pray that we all experience all that today in this place. Your word brings truth, your word brings power, your word changes lives. And we know that uh, to be true. And today we pray that boldly that that would happen in the lives of those here to worship you today. That people would be uh, drawn in your presence, lives would be changed, hearts would be healed, illnesses would be healed, wounds would be healed, uh, broken hearts mended to bring you honor and you glory. Um, we pray right now that as we worship, as we take up our tithes and our offerings, um, you bless us with so much. Uh, couldn't even begin uh, to start naming the things that we're blessed with from your hand. Um, and so today, I pray that you help us to give back uh, a portion of that in order to uh, help uh, your name be made great in our community, our church, and our lives. Lord, just pray for Brother Amir Keener as he comes, that he would speak your word, speak it boldly, speak your message to our hearts. We just love you. We praise your holy name. Jesus, I pray. Amen.
Amen. What a blessing to have him sing. I leaned over the doctors. I've not really looked at the bulletin that much. Got to hear those two sing. They, they put American out of shame. Then I flipped up and said, Oh, you get to hear them. And we thank God. Those like Philip and Lauren who use their talents to serve the Lord and bless our hearts. What a joy it is to be here today and see everyone who's here. If you're visiting with us, I know Ryan has already said this, but I'm Pastor Matt. I'm, I'm thrilled you're here. And I want you to just make yourself at home and realize something. As I am about to introduce our preacher this morning, God can do whatever He wants this morning if we just surrender. Now with that in mind, I want to introduce to you Dr. Emer Kainer. Dr. Kainer was raised in a Muslim home. His father was an Islamic leader. But one day, not unlike today, Somebody from Stelzer Baptist Church invited him to a revival service. And it was in that revival service that he met his Savior. Trusted Jesus Christ for his life. Through that time, God spoke to his heart. And after high school, he went to Criswell College in Texas. It's a long way from Columbus, Ohio. For a boy raised in a Muslim home. But went to that great college, and then after uh, he got his undergraduate degree, he did his Master of Divinity at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. After that, he went back to Texas, the University of Texas in Arlington, uh, to complete his PhD. After graduation, he began to pastor and serve uh, on staff at various churches, then God called him back into the educational field and he began to teach there at Southwestern and uh, in various uh, areas of that school before being called to be the fourth or eighth president. Uh, eighth president. I, had, I was pretty close. I just doubled the numbers. And, and that's what... Actually, it's more than double. He became the president of Troop McConnell College, but as of May the 14th, Troop McConnell University. And he started, there were just several hundred uh, enrolled at Troop McConnell, great Georgia Baptist College, one of our three, Ruby Parker, which is just over in Mount Vernon, and Shorter University in Rome, of which one of their graduates won silver in one of the track events last night. But since Dr. Kainer took over in the late 2000s, 2008, I believe, they have grown. And this year, they had 288 incoming new students. It's the largest freshman class they have ever had, of whom Tegan and Emily are a part of. As a parent, I am thrilled that they're at the school and on such a godly campus. If you go there, Christian is more than a name. It's more than being part of an association or a convention. First thing on Tuesday and Thursday morning, she's in her great commission class. I said yesterday, she said, I've got homework. I said, what are you doing? She said, I'm writing on a paper, Matt Tucker, on the chapters one through three of the book of Acts. 
And so it thrills Pastor Debbie's heart to see what's going on. It is so Christian, six students were saved during the orientation. Amen. That's a great testament to what Dr. Kaner is doing at True McConnell and such great staff that all the coaches, all the leaders are expected to invest and mentor the Christian life, disciple in every facet. Matter of fact, every school there, whether it's psychology, nursing, teaching, whatever your major is, the school of that uh, intensive is named after a famous historical figure uh, in Anabaptist history. And so we are thrilled to have Dr. Kane with us today. He went uh, on a mission trip and met his beautiful bride, Hannah, who was raised in the Czech Republic. They have three children. God is blessing. God is blessing us today to have Dr. Amor Kane all the way from Cleveland, Georgia, to come and preach for us this morning. Dr. Kane. Well, good morning again. I want you to turn to your scripture to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18. We just welcomed our students in. I love it. I adore just being part of their lives. We moved here in 2008, living in Texas. Uh, if you've ever lived in Texas, it's a different place than here. It's a flat place. You can watch your dog run away for three days. You have a flat place. And God blessed us to move to Georgia. And I've never lived in Georgia. So uh, I was a novice here. My wife being Czech, when we were in Texas, we have three children, and we wanted them to know their mama's native tongue of the, of the Czech language. So we started to teach them the Czech language, and then we moved to Georgia. <laughs> Now their first language is redneck. <laughs> uh, they were one, three, and five when we came, and now my son turns 14 uh, this year. I absolutely love it here. Uh, I get to live in the mountains of North Georgia, and it's a great place. If you ever get to be a pessimist, and you think, my goodness, what's happening to this generation, and you ever get on the decline, don't be a pessimist about this generation. God is infusing in so many of their hearts marvelous plan for their lives. I live to see revival. I'm not a pessimist. I believe it will happen. Um, I don't think it is going to happen like a lot of people think it's going to happen. So many people look to the wrong things for revival. They wonder, well, if Washington, D.C. just gets cleaned up, we'll see revival. It doesn't matter who's in the Oval Office or who's in the halls of Congress. Washington, D.C. cannot bring about revival. That's not its call. That's not what God intended it to do. Uh, politicians and politics can't bring about revival. Just think about what politics is. Polly and ticks. Many blood-sucking creatures. <laughs> or at least it feels that way. When you get on into the halls of Congress and you see so many people who represent something but never seem to represent Christ. And they get on TV and they speak of all of their opinions. But we just wait for them to speak for the Lord. But here's the good news. Washington, D.C. can't start revival, but neither can it stop revival. See, whether revival comes to our churches, to our universities, to our nation, is going to be dependent upon the altars of God being filled by the people of God praying for Him 
to pour His Spirit out on this generation. That's what I want to speak to you upon, is revival and a cynical generation. So, with the Bible in your hand, I invite you to 1 Kings chapter 18. We're going to read verses 20 to 23, but hold out your scripture because we're going to walk through this passage all the way to verse 40. 1 Kings 18 and verse 20 says this, So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two of if the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, follow Him. But the people answered Him not a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone have left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore let them give us two bowls, and let them choose one bowl for themselves, cut it to pieces, lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. Now prepare the other bowl, lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. Just think about the scenario. See, at this point in time, the oddest word of the passage you and I just read comes from verse 23. It is the word, therefore. If everything preceding therefore is true, why in the world would Elijah summon these people to a duel? Now, take a step back and realize his difficult situation. He is invited to Mount Carmel. He's not invited for a dialogue. He's not invited for a discussion. He's invited for his death. They're there to snuff out the life of Elijah. Not only that, but when he comes there, he notices that there's one of him, right? The rest of the nation of Israel has chosen to either in secret or completely abandon the Lord. And on the other hand, there are 450 false prophets. And when he stands before these false prophets, the nation of Israel and all the people who have seen so many miracles of the Lord say not a word. And with all of that in mind, Elijah steps to the plate and says, Therefore, let's have a spiritual battle. Think, are you kidding me? Do you not know Elijah what you're doing? You should be a pessimist. Everything's against you. Everyone's against you. This situation's going to end in your death. And you are talking to the people as if you're going to win. So what do you have, Elijah, in your mind that we don't in today's society? After all, it was a very negative society. There's no one worshiping the Lord. They were fallen into idolatry. First Kings chapter 16. All of the prophets of Baal demanded that to appease Baal, you had to kill. You had to sacrifice your firstborn son in order to appease the gods. And you would see this happen over and over again. Elijah, what do you think that somehow revival is going to come to your nation? Your perspective in the Lord Jesus Christ is everything. The way you see a situation will then determine your trust in the Lord, which will determine His work in your life. You see, when He was invited to Mount Carmel, He wasn't invited to His death. He was ordained by the Lord to be there. And not only was He ordained by the Lord to be there, so many thought He was outnumbered 450 to 1, but He knew He outnumbered them 1 to 0, one living God to the non-existent. He knew, ordained by God to be here, worshiping the living Lord, 
And even if no one stood with him, revival doesn't come because a majority stands up. Revival comes because a remnant stands firm. See, in today's society, we worry. Do you realize if statistics remain true, Pew Research just came out with this. Last September, they put out what is the world going to look like in 2050? Just a generation from now. Do you realize over the next 35 years, 106 million Christians will walk away from Christ? Three million a year. You say, well, that's around the world. That's mostly in the West. That's Europe. And that's the United States. And here's more of a graphic statistic. Of all of those who will walk away from Jesus Christ, more than 80% of those who will walk away will be in their college years. You understand those walking away from the faith are not those in their 40s or 50s or 60s. Indeed, of all that percentage of 100%, only 2% after 60 years old ever does so. It's those 18 to 29. They're the ones grappling and wrestling and all of those things. And we wonder what is happening. Listen, the world is not declining because Islam is advancing. The world is declining because Christianity is retreating. The greatest danger in this world is not radical Islam. It's apathetic Christianity. And Elijah knew. He knew it. He saw with his own eyes. The entire nation said, we're not going to stand with you. But he wasn't going to give up on revival. And if you ask me in one sentence, what makes you live and breathe? It's to see this generation. See revival. Taste revival. Experience revival. And it's not an if. God is not a God who said, I might do it over here. And I might do it over there. God is a good God who desires it. But conditions it upon our surrender. So what is it going to take for us, whether you're 80 years old or 8 years old, for this generation to see revival? I submit to you, you and I need the characteristics of Elijah. So walk with me through four short characteristics of Elijah. The first found in verses 20 to 23, you see, the first thing it takes when a culture is hurting and declining and broken needs to be healed. The first thing it needs is confrontation. Now, when you would think of confrontation, you may think of all you mean to be obnoxious to make some statement that really gets in someone's grill. But that's not what they're dealing with here. I want you to notice what biblical confrontation looks like. First of all, biblical confrontation begins when Elijah is invited by someone who is enemy who wants to kill him. But notice who's the first one to speak. Elijah is. Not them. He owns the conversation because he knows he's ordained by God to be there. So if you note in verse 21, he begins the conversation. He takes over the situation. And he asks them of all things a question. He came to all the people, not just some. And he said, how long, and here's the Hebrew way of saying this. How long will you walk crippled between two opinions? Now that's going to be key because later on it will be a fulfilled prophecy. But they, even the nation of Israel knew they had one step in the world and one step with the Lord and they thought they could live life in that manner and they were walking crippled. Part of the problem with Christianity today is we've just got one foot in the world and we got one foot with the Lord and we wonder why the 
blessings don't rain down when we're walking in such a way that it's not striving at 100%, but merely getting by. And Elijah owned it. How did he own it? Did he make some obnoxious statement? No, that will come later, by the way. He began with a question. You see, when we assume confrontation, we think confrontation means we've got to get in someone's face and speak to them in some strong way that absolutely immaterializes them. But that's not what confrontation is. Confrontation is pouring into someone's heart what their need is. Confrontation, if you'll notice, is not just a message. It's a method. Notice throughout the entirety of Scripture, confrontation always begins with a question. That's the method. It's Elijah, 1 Kings 18. It's Jesus with the woman. It's Paul at the Areopagus. Over and over again, the way to have someone's attention, to speak to the deepest part of who they are, is to speak to their heart. And the way to do so is to ask a question. And I said it to you, if asking a question is the best way to get to someone, that a gender most naturally suited to ask a question is the female gender. Ladies, you are naturally suited. You ask questions. We men, we don't ask questions. Let me show you what I mean. When I got married 16 years ago, I wish someone would have written a book that is right true for most men in here, entitled Setup Questions Wives Ask Their Husbands. Ladies, I don't know how you find these books, but they're everywhere. I married a woman from the Czech Republic. We dated for a week and got married. Somehow the book was translated in Czech. And they're not difficult questions. Gentlemen, if you're single in here, these questions are not ornate and complex questions. But you have to understand, your newlywed wife is not going to ask you that question at about 3 p.m. when your mind is sharp. No, she's going to ask you about midnight when your mind is dull. She's going to ask questions... Like this, my wife and I were laying in bed, we were newlyweds, and all of a sudden she asked this question, Honey, was I the only one for you? That's a simple question. Yes, you're done. Unless you're an idiot. Yes, done. Idiot. You see, at the time, I'm a philosopher by nature, that's what I taught. And at the time I was teaching philosophy at Southeastern Seminary. And so when my wife asked the question and merely wanted to ask about her, our emotional state and the word of encouragement together, I didn't hear that. Here's what I heard. Honey, I'd like to talk about free will and predestination and how that was involved in our marriage. I heard Because I'm an idiot. So I romantically looked her in the eye and I said, no. Now I'm trouble. Huge trouble. I look, my wife has that look. Every man knows the look the wife gives when she's disappointed. Not angry, disappointed. And I tried my best to explain. Finally, I got to I said, Hannah, out of all of the men that you could have dated, my wife was a gorgeous woman. She was a gymnast all the way through college. And, and she could have dated many men in God's biblical parameters. But out of all of that, God put us together. And we chose each other. And honey, out of all of the women I could have dated. That was a theoretical question. Just look at me. I could be a double for a quart of veggie tails. Right? I'm a, a bald man. I look like the, the, the love child between a Saudi woman and Mr. Clean. 
Growing up, I was a geek. I literally was. I was nerdy and geeky. And I, I never had a date. I didn't. And, and so that was a theoretical question. Out of all the women I could have chosen, God's scripture, uh, biblical parameters, God put us together. We chose each other. Honey, would you rather I loved you because I had to? Or would you rather I loved you because I wanted to? Now I know the right answer. Knew the right answer. Our daughter was born about nine months later. <laughs> part of their soul. When someone's on their last leg, when someone is hurting, do you know what the best thing you can do for them is? Ask the right question. Get to the deepest part of their being. Speak to who they are. That's what Elijah did. He looked straight into the eyes of the Jewish people and said, aren't you tired of walking crippled? You don't want to know how it works? The confrontation began. It began, you see it in verse 23, he said, all right, we've got past the preliminaries. I've asked the question. Here you are. There are 450 of you, one of me. You're surrounding me. You're ready to kill me. Therefore, let's just have at it. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to see whose God rains down fire. Have you ever wondered why Elijah chose fire? God speaks, Hebrews 1, 1 says, in a myriad of ways. So why by fire? Here's why. The centerpiece of the theology of the prophets of Baal said their God can rain down fire. Instead of beating around the bush, instead of changing the subject, Elijah looked at him and said, I hear you promise, your number one promise of your God is that your God can rain down fire. Let's see it happen. Didn't beat around the bush. Straight confrontation. Here's the thing, though. It's not just confrontation. It's confidence. I want you to notice that even false religions have true confidence. Look at verse 24. He sets up and he says, all right, let's see who's God can rain down fire. End of verse 24. What do the prophets of Baal say? It is well spoken. Do you understand? They believed their God could rain down fire. A false religion could have true sincerity and still be wrong. So here comes the setup. In fact, Elijah makes sure there's no power in himself. He says, you guys pick a bowl. You guys choose the wood. You guys set all of this stuff. Cut up the bowl. And let's see who's got to rain down fire. And I'll tell you what. You pick two of them. And whichever one you don't want, I'll take the other one. Got it? Got it. Okay. Here we go. The second thing that was needed is confidence. Now listen to me. Not cockiness. Confidence. There's a massive difference. Confidence says, look at me. Confidence says, look at him. Elijah gets their eyes off of the decline and onto the Lord himself. But how does he do so? In a way you and I would feel comfortable. I want you to notice how confident Elijah gets. Look at verse 26. Elijah said uh, to the prophets of Baal. Now let's go to verse 26. So they took the bowl which was given them. They prepared the, it and called the name of Baal from morning till noon. Now that's a three-hour worship service of a false god. Got it? I mean, imagine what you're seeing. Three hours. They are begging Baal to rain down fire. 
They called up David Baal from morning even until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, hear us. Now, if no other verse in Scripture should break your heart to so many millions of people worshiping false gods, here it is, verse 26. But there was no voice. No one answered. It's not as if he says it once. Drop down to verse 29. And when midday was past, they prophesied until that time of the offering of evening sacrifice, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. No one cared. You know why Elijah came with confidence? Because they were broken. They needed an answer. They needed the only answer that could be found, that is, in the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember being Muslim and praying to Allah. And I looked up to Allah and I said, I'm talking to you. Why don't you talk to me? There's a simple answer to that. Dead gods don't speak. That shouldn't be something that summons our confidence. That should be something that summons our brokenness. That today, 1.6 billion Muslims. By 2050, 2.7 billion Muslims. 400 million Buddhists. 1.1 billion Hindus. Wake up this morning worshiping either one false god or as Hindus, 330 million false gods. And they look up and they say, I talk to you. Why don't you talk to me? So you would think, oh my goodness, this brokenness is going to lead to some contrite spirit. This is where it doesn't make sense to you or me. Look at verse 27. And all of a sudden, it gets a little bit wrangly in Scripture. And was it noon that Elijah, what does your Scripture say? Mock them. Look, I know you've gone through evangelistic training. I'm quite sure for all of us who've gone through evangelistic training, we've never seen anything that says, number one, make fun of them. But here's the problem. If you look at verse 36, Elijah says, I have done all these things at your word. Including the mocking. In fact, it gets awful for a second. Uncomfortable. You want to see how uncomfortable it gets? Look at verse 27. He mocked them and he said, cry aloud, for he's a God. Either he's meditating or he's busy. That literally can be translated, maybe your God is sitting on a toilet. Obnoxious, isn't it? I've never said that to someone. Have you? Of course not. So how do you explain it? You can't excuse it. He's done all these things at God's word. So how do you explain it? Two things. One, everything he says in verse 27, maybe you've got his meditator busy, he's on a journey, or maybe it needs to be awakened, is something that the prophets of Baal promise. The prophets of Baal promise that sometimes God's on vacation. Now why would they say that? Because you've got to make an excuse for a God that doesn't speak. These are all excuses made by the prophets themselves. But there's a second issue. The darker someone is in their sin, the more likely you have to say strong words to awaken them. Any parent or grandparent knows this. That you may have to say something to your children or grandchildren you don't want to say. You don't desire to say. But they're walking to our path. And it's not simply a path. It's a path to destruction. And you know, if you don't get a hold of their heart, they're heading towards doom. He's the last one. If he's killed, the messianic line is over. So he realizes that. I think we come to a place like that in our own nation where if we don't have prophets of God 
were willing to speak strongly and prophetically, this nation may see its last days. But oh, the confidence. Stunning. Confidence is an understanding. You ever ask, why is Elijah so confident? You go back to 1 Kings 17. Twice God speaks to Elijah in 1 Kings 17. First time he says, hey, it's not going to rain until you say rain. Now, wouldn't you be confident if the Lord gave you power of the natural rain? Second time the Lord speaks to him and says, hey, Elijah, I need you to go to a widow's home. She's not only lost her husband, but she's lost a child. You need to sit by the child's bedside and you're going to see a resurrection. Would you be confident if you saw a resurrection of a young child? How much more so when you and I celebrate the three greatest words ever spoken in the English language? He is risen. For you and I not to be confident in our Lord is a mockery. Mockery to His perfect life, His sacrificial death, and to His powerful resurrection. See, you know the devil's greatest trick? For most of us in here, we'll never reject faith. But the devil's greatest trick is not to get you to walk away. The devil's greatest trick is to get you to shut up. If he gets you to be silent, he'll conquer this generation. Three kids at home. Now, my wife wants a fourth, but I'm 45 years old. So I quoted Jesus to her. It is finished. <laughs> not paying for college with a social security check. So... Three kids. My oldest, I have two daughters and one son. My son's the oldest. My daughter, one of my daughters, when she was two or three years old, had a knack. She had something that perhaps she would recognize as well. We lived in Texas at the time. She was a toddler. She had a bedroom on the second floor. I was on the first floor. And she loved to creep out of the room about three o'clock in the morning. Now, we had all the gadgets, all the audios and videos to make sure she didn't get out of the room. But somehow she got out every time. She'd get out of her bed, we wouldn't hear it. She'd open her creaking door, we wouldn't creak. She'd walk down the steps, we wouldn't hear it. She'd open up our door, we wouldn't hear it. She'd come, not to her mama's side of the bed, no, on my side of the bed. She'd come up about three millimeters from my face. She'd just stare. Just that, stare, until finally, you know, you're in a dream, but you awake just a little bit. And you look, and there she is. Never saying a word. I, I'm a child of the 80s. All I could think is, Chucky? <laughs> you know what she would do? She'd turn around, go back upstairs, and never say a word. Do you know that is in Scripture? That's creepy. That, that is it's eerie. Have you ever heard someone say, preach the gospel, use words if necessary? Use words. Yeah. <laughs> because you can't preach the gospel without it. You know what it is when you live a life for Jesus but won't speak a life for Jesus to others? That's creepy. He was confident. He hit them right where they were. But thirdly, he wasn't merely confrontational. Confident. He was compassionate. Now listen to me. Confrontation without compassion, well, that's just arrogance. But compassion without confrontation. That's just emotion. I want you to notice how much he loved these folks. He gets their attention. The prophets fail, can't get fired right now. So now what does he do? Verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord and it was broken down. Do you understand what he just did? 
after speaking truth into the deepest part of their being, he pauses and he says, y'all come around me. I need to talk to you. And they circle him. He says, now, now hold on a second. I'm going to repair the altar. Now, that seems odd, doesn't it? Imagine if revival breaks out in the church, and the church is fantastic. Revival is here. We're going to paint the walls. That doesn't make any sense, except what the altar represented. It was symbolic. See, look, look at verse 31. The Elijah took the 12 stones according to the number of the tribes and sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come. Say, Israel shall be your name. Do you know why you rebuilt the altar? It had their names on it. It was like having your family name. So just picture. You, you walk down to 12 tribes and you go, there it is. There, there's, my, there's my family name. And, and there's yours. And there's yours. Why? Why would he do so? To whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. Do you know when a revival is necessary? When we forget whose we are. When we lost our identity, when any person, any church, or any nation, when they lose what it is to know their identity, they need revival. And Elijah writes their names down. Compassion pours out. You know how deep that compassion comes? If you look at verse 37, here's the prayer of Elijah for this whole passage after fire is raining down. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that these people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Was he confident and confrontational? Was he obnoxious? Yeah. Was there a point behind it? Absolutely. Elijah closed his eyes every evening, dreaming that the people of Israel one day worship exclusively their Lord again. All of a sudden it was happening. Fire ran down. Prayer answered. Revival breaks out in verse 39. How does revival look? Have you ever noticed that of all these verses, the shortest one's verse 39, but it's the point of the entire passage. Verse 39, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces. Literally, they fell till their noses hit the ground. And they said, the Lord, He is God. Lord, He is God. Let me see if I get this right. The same people who are massacring their firstborn children are now worshiping God, and you think God's going to accept it? Yes, that's exactly our God. Wherever you find yourself this morning, if you find yourself, you say, you don't know what I've done. The answer is, you've got to know the unconditional love of Christ. He'll accept whatever you've done. These people massacred firstborn sons, threw away the worship of the Lord, broke the commandments, and God said, come on back. You're mine. See, the, the heart of revival that pours itself into evangelism. It is disciples making disciples. Sold out people surrender to Christ, telling others to surrender to Jesus Christ. That's why there's no inappropriate places to do evangelism. I to ask you today, you know, where, where would be an impolite, inappropriate place to share Jesus? You'd probably give a list for me. It could be X, Y, or Z. And I'd submit to you, it's probably the greatest place you need to share Jesus. For example, if I'd ask you this question, what church service has more lost people in it? 
than any other church service. The answer is not Mother's Day or a holiday. The answer is pretty simple. It's a funeral. At funerals, more lost people will darken East Side or First Heaven, where I'm a member of any other church than any other service. And I submit to you, it's one of the least places you find and hear the gospel. I, uh, I had a sweet lady pass away from a place I had pastored. And I went there not to officiate the funeral, but simply to honor her memory. So I'm sitting in the back one day, and the church is packed. This church had seen about 200 shoulder to shoulder. And I'm listening to preachers, two of them up there, speaking about her. They did a great job honoring her memory. She was a godly woman, soul winner. They did a great job honoring her, but they never once shared the gospel. What broke my heart was I was sitting way in the back, and I looked at every pew, and I'd say, oh, they're so-and-so. I got to baptize their daughters, but they would never accept you. There's so-and-so, he slammed his door, my, his door in my face. And there's so-and-so that wouldn't even let me on the farm. And I can literally go pew to pew and I saw more lost people there than Satan. And the gospel was never once presented. And my heart broke and I got angry. I'm driving home. My wife's with me. And she said, boy, you're angry. I said, yeah. I said, not once gospel presented to all those lost people there. She said, yeah, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to make you a promise that when I die, the gospel is going to be presented. And she said, well, you don't know when you're going to die. You don't know when you're going to preach your funeral. I said, I know both of those things. I do know at least the last word I'm going to hear before I die. Because anybody knows me knows my dietary habits. I'm not an omnivore. I'm a carnivore. Vegetables, not a food. Vegetables, what food eats. And so I know the last words I'm going to hear before I see Jesus will be clear. And then I'll be with my Lord. <laughs> and I know who's going to preach my funeral. I hope this gives you an idea. My wife said, who? I said, I am. Right? Technology is a wonderful thing. And one day, I'll be gone. And my big head will be on the screen. And I'll be smiling. And I'll say, hello, I'm with Jesus, and you're not yet. No more over me for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. And then I'm going to preach. I'm going to preach long. Then I'm going to preach hard. You can't get mad at me. I'm the guy in the box. Okay? I'm going to preach long. I'm going to preach hard. I'm going to give an invitation. I'm going to have my cold, dead hand sticking out of that casket. You can come shake the preacher's hand if you want to get saved. What is it going to look like? I don't know. I just want people to have an opportunity to accept Jesus wherever I am. See, I was on a mission trip to Romania. I met a man at a hospital who passes away two hours later. He was robbed with cancer. The last thing he told his family is, I want that guy to preach my funeral. I thought it was ridiculous. I knew nothing about him. And then it dawned on me what he wanted me to do. The only thing we had in common was Jesus. So I walked into doing a funeral in Romania on a 10-day mission trip. Walked into a church that sat 200. There were 700 people there. Windows were open. Sunday schools were full. People were parading outside. And I got to preach the gospel and see seven people come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is not an inappropriate place to share Jesus. That's compassion. 
One last thing, and we need to finish. Confrontation and confidence and compassion has to lead to one other thing it'll take to see revival. It's going to be possible. <laughs> I want you to notice how this passage ends. Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, do not let one of them escape. So they seized them and brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. He did what? He killed them. Is that allowed? Yes, Deuteronomy chapter 13. The law of Israel was that if you were proven to be a false prophet, it was a capital crime. And the prophets of Baal knew that walking into Israel. Do you understand how profound that was? How stunning it is if people are willing to die for what is not true, but we Christians are willing to live for what is true. Prophets of Baal knew, walking into the nation of Israel, if they ever said God would rain down fire and he didn't, they would be snuffed out. But do you understand the other side of that equation? Elijah knew, walking into his land, that it was either revival or death. It wasn't merely that he was going to be put to death by the prophets of Baal. He then sets up a prophecy that says, My God can rain down fire. If he was proven wrong, he would be put to death by the law of Israel. He was willing to sacrifice his life to see others come to Jesus and to see revival. Here's the whole thesis of this passage. A faith that's worth living for is a faith that's worth dying for. And a faith that's worth dying for is the faith that's worth living for. See, I grew up in Islam, but my wife grew up under communism. Her family was a known family. Her daddy was a pastor and her grandfather was a pastor. They knew persecution and exile. And then my, my political hero was a man who in 1987 stood in front of the Brandenburg Gate on June the 12th and said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Robert Reagan. Two years later, it happens. It begins in Berlin. It flushes its way east to the Czech Republic, back then Czechoslovakia. In November, they call it the Velvet Revolution. It was a peaceful overthrow of the government that brought their freedom. It sweeps through the rest of the Soviet Empire. So two years later, they see freedom. And then the stories start to come out. Stories of heroism, persecution. I got to hear one such story from my wife's homeland of a pastor who he thought it was his duty, his obligation to give the scripture in the hands of Czech people. But the problem is you couldn't mass-produce the Czech Bible. So he had to find a way to smuggle in the Bible so that Czech people, most of them were atheists, by the way, didn't even care, could get a Bible in their hands. So he, he found a secret compartment he bore out of the backseat of his old little car. He found a, a publisher in Germany. They drive his little car by night all the way to Germany. He'd take his little girl with him so that he would take these Bibles that he'd buy by the hundreds, stuff them in the secret back seat, underneath the secret back seat, plop down the seat, and then he'd put his little girl on top. And he'd tell her to go to sleep, and inevitably the KJV would pull him over, and inevitably they would interrogate him, and inevitably they wouldn't find the Bibles because she was sleeping. <laughs> And he figured out it would work. So he took his little girl with him over and over again. 
and, and he got the Bible into the hands of Czech people. These, these are not stories that I heard in the library in Prague when we spent time there. These are stories we heard at home. See, that the man that did so, he's, he's my father. The little girl in the back seat, that's my wife. And what is keen to us today is this simple message. If we're going to seek revival, it's only going to happen when the older generation pours itself into the younger generation. When we stand together, shoulder to shoulder, for the Lord Jesus Christ, regardless of the consequences, that agelessly we put ourselves together as one generation and say, God, I don't know what it's going to cost, but count me in. Now it's easy, I'll be honest with you, it's easy for me to say that of myself. I control my life. But it's harder to say of our children. It's much easier, I'll submit to you, to say God take me than it is to say God take them. But if we're going to see revival, it doesn't simply take me. It takes them. And imagine mom and dad and grandma and grandpa if you come home today and your daughter says I'm, I'm, I'm called to be a missionary you say oh that's great stay in Georgia no God's calling me elsewhere is it elsewhere is it a nice place I don't think so there's a lot of lost people there let me ask you a question would you encourage them or discourage them would you equip them or distract Would you tell them to follow their call? Find something else for them to do. See, uh, it's much easier for me to say, Lord, take me. Uh, my children, my nine-year-old, my 11-year-old, my 13-year-old. Oh, it's a different thing. The only way we're going to see revival is when we surrender our lives, our faith, our churches to whatever the Lord desires to do. Let's pray. <coughs> Lord, this is uh, your time, your people, your church, your book that's been opened. And I pray, Lord, you do what only you can do. Speak in such a way that it convicts every heart. Grateful, Lord, that the Bible is not for some, but for all. That when you speak, you not speak to some, but you speak to all. And this morning, it's not as if you are passing by some. You are speaking to each of us. And so, Lord, I pray we'll do business with you today. Maybe the business we need to do is just an encouraging word you're giving us. For so many, they're serving you. And you simply are saying, well done. Keep up. Keep faithful. But Lord, there are others here in the auditorium. The some, they don't know you as Lord or Savior. And you're saying from Matthew 11, 28, Come unto me, all you are tired and broken, and I will give you rest. Lord, I pray for those who need salvation today would be that day where they repent of their sins and find faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't make them a better person, but makes them a new creature. But Lord, for some of us, so what we've heard from the singing right till now. It's the word surrender. God, for some of us, we readily admit that surrender hasn't happened 
in the way you've asked it to happen. Lord, I pray we'll walk out of here fully surrendered to you. Lord, if there is any specific calling, calling where there is a call to surrender to ministry or to missions, to serve at this church, whatever it is, Lord, your voice, your people, never take it for granted when you speak. Far too many people will wake this morning to worship gods and don't speak back. May we not take for granted when you do. We pray in Christ. Amen. Would you stand with me? As you stand, this is the time. God's people are right here. Pastor Matt will be right here in front. In particular, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, like I did on the Thursday night of the Bible meeting, I promise you, God will change your heart, give you a new life and a new birth if you'll simply say, I receive Him. But some of us here may need to do business with the Lord and surrender.
not to be busy sharing the gospel. There are far too many hurting people not to share a good, encouraging word from Scripture. And Lord, your army is right here. And I pray, Lord, the difference it makes wouldn't merely be in Claxton, but be felt worldwide. Lord, if we are to be doing business with you, we recognize that the altar is one place that that can be done, but not the only place. So, Lord, may we recognize your voice later today, whether sitting on a couch or going to bed this evening, and simply listen, respond, and surrender. Christ, let me pray. Pastor Amen. <coughs> I want to do one more verse simply for the simple fact that uh, if I ask how many were saved because they give another verse or something, it's not because of that. But sometimes that song, I freely give, we don't. We've made excuses on every verse. Well, I've got this and I've got that. Some it agitates that I may have given this verse, but I feel very led by the Spirit that can do this. Because in his prayer, as he mentioned, Dr. Cater's called us to faithfulness through His Word, God's Word. And you don't want to leave here disobedient today. So you know in your heart you need to come make your salvation public. You need to come and let everybody know you need to follow in believers' baptism. God is calling you to step out and lead in some area of your life to surrender to ministry, to surrender your walk, surrender your family, whatever it is, don't leave until you can, before God, say, I surrender all. So whatever you need to do is there's still praying. You come right now. Last one.
from Great Britain. You may be God's tool for reaching your little corner of the world. Let us be found faithful. Let us have the characteristics of Elijah. Let us be found faithful. Having done all to sing. May God bless you as you go. Uh, tonight, Steve Kimbrell, uh, former pastor at First Baptist College, will be preaching for us tonight. So that's going to be a wonderful time when the Lord is well. Pray for Dr. Kaner as he travels back north. Bless his heart. He's got to go back to Cleveland and Helen, Georgia. And, you know, uh, but you pray for him as God continues to use him in such a mighty way in the life of all of these students. Anything else before we dismiss this thing? All right, if not, Matt, will you dismiss us in prayer? Dr. Kaner, you want to read it in the Dear Lord, we love you. Thank you for the message today. Thank you uh, for just the power uh, that we uh, get experience through you. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would just help us just to uh, definitely uh, look for opportunities to, to share uh, your message and then do it confidently, uh, to do it compassionately. Uh, because uh, the need is great. Your call to us is to go into all the nations uh, to share the gospel and make disciples. Please help us to be found faithful uh, in doing that. Lord, we love you. We pray that you just help us have a great afternoon and come back prepared to worship you uh, corporately again tonight. In your most precious and holy name I pray. Amen. Amen.